This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. My name is Andy Frank, manager of AMI Audio. For the second consecutive year, I was honored to be invited to Access Israel's annual convention, its seventh in this case, in late May of 2019. It gathers about 800 delegates from 22 countries to learn about ways to make our world a more inclusive and accessible place. In my report last year, I focused mostly on technological innovations. Israel is a startup hub, a rich, fertile place for app developers to realize their visions. In this report, you'll hear a sample of that kind of work, as well as some of the work Google's accessibility team is doing. However, this time, I'd like to share some interviews with people who have proven various concepts in real life, on the ground, old school as it were, to make a difference in the lives of thousands of people living with disabilities. Some involve tech, yes, and some just good old-fashioned sound thinking. You'll hear from a woman who empowers blind students in Africa, and from a man who has made voting truly accessible for Swedes with intellectual disabilities. You'll hear from the good work being done by a giant chain of tobacco retailers in Austria. Yes, I said good work. And you'll hear from the accessibility officer of a large Nordic hotel chain that boasts a 159-point accessibility checklist all of its hotels must obey. You'll also hear of the successes and challenges faced by people who have a mandate and the authority to break down barriers in the U.S. and in Israel. And we'll talk about what Canadians with our new accessibility law might learn from them. All the people you'll hear from share one thing in common, an immeasurable passion to play a significant role in making the world a more accessible place. But first, you'll hear from philanthropist Martin Essel of Vienna, Austria, a country that was very strongly represented at the conference in Tel Aviv. Mr. Essel of the Essel Foundation is the head of Zero Project. Its mission is working for a world with zero barriers. The Zero Project is an uh, innovation network, uh, contains of uh, some 5,000 experts from 180 countries. And our goal is to search and find out the best solutions uh, worldwide, uh, helping uh, persons and supporting persons with disabilities. That means innovative policies as well as innovative practices. So every year, you send out a call for nominations, as it were, from around the world, uh, based on a theme. So let's go to. We'll jump right to this year. What's uh, what are you looking for this year? Yeah, we are preparing the next year's conference always taking place in the UN headquarters in Vienna uh, where about 800 people from 80 countries meet and uh, we are looking for innovative policies and practices on education. Our goal is that everybody no matter if they are, have disabilities or not they all have should have and must have access to education as well as education to jobs and therefore accessibility is the essential uh, activity and to work together uh, in the community and this is uh, where the strength of the Zero Project lies that we are searching, communicating through conferences, uh, reports and also the internet and connecting people so that they develop role models and scale them up uh, out uh, uh, international. 
Martin Essel of Zero Project goes on to talk about how the organization supports social entrepreneurs. We have developed a the very first accelerating program together with Ashoka, uh, which has uh, developed uh, a supporting system to social entrepreneurs all over the world and has done this so far uh, since the last 40 years. And we have designed a concept where social entrepreneurs uh, who are awarded in our conference are supported so that their organization will be uh, fit for globalization. The main problem in the social um, activities are that innovations are found uh, throughout the world, but those guys, innovative guys, don't know anything uh, about other innovations from other parts of the world. And this is different to the economy. And as a businessman, I uh, know about the strengths to communicate, to find innovations and to realize them successfully. And uh, my goal now is through a Zero Project to find an approach where innovations are announced and spread internationally so that the wheel has not been uh, found out uh, a second or third or at 100,000 times. In other words, let entrepreneurs from around the world build on each other's work rather than repeating the same efforts in isolation. A trip to zeroproject.org will blow your mind. There are hundreds of proven practices and policies from around the world beautifully laid out there for everyone's benefit and hundreds more to come. I asked Martin Essel what drove him to start Zero Project in the first place over a decade ago. The inspiration came uh, from my Christian faith. We uh, had a uh, retailing company employing persons with disabilities for three, three decades. At first, it was to help persons who really have problems to find uh, jobs. But I found out that these guys were terrific in most cases. They were engaged, and if we, uh, found, uh, we, we found a fit between their special talents and our needs, they were among the best uh, employers in our company. And then we found out that uh, always the whole team changed. Uh, the, uh, the empathy growed um, and people looked at each other uh, and this was uh, good in, uh, especially in bad times and in, in complicating times that we really were uh, uh, very good also solving problems together and finding new solutions. And there was another deeply personal motivation behind the creation of the Essel Foundation. About uh, 25 years ago, unfortunately, we lost a child. And when uh, God enables us to get uh, further uh, children, we donated and pledged that uh, at that time half of our wealth uh, we donated to social activities. We uh, founded a, the Essel Foundation uh, and uh, uh, had the idea uh, to develop an innovative network uh, which didn't exist in other forms in, in, in this uh, industry uh, 
and uh, this is a very meaningful life and I'm very thankful to have the opportunity to find fantastic, amazing uh, people working very engaged uh, if it is uh, in Israel where they try to find new solutions and uh, they motivate us also uh, to change uh, the accessible way in uh, Austria which is about the same size of Israel with 9 million inhabitants uh, and uh, we are uh, putting uh, the balls uh, from one hand to another and with 5,000 experts and friends of the family of Zero Project we are really strong and I'm very happy and thankful about it. That was Martin Essel of Zero Project. For more information go to zeroproject.org. One of the innovators who was recently recognized at Zero Project's conference at the UN in Vienna was the coordinator of My Choice, My Election in Sweden. The problem they addressed was that many people with intellectual disabilities do not vote in elections as they may find it difficult to understand what the vote is about and or how to vote due to inaccessible information and complex political language. He explains how they went about solving the problem. Shell begins by introducing himself. Shell Kwan Holm, Malmö, Sweden. And I work for a non-formal adult popular education company in Sweden. In the 90s, research was made in Sweden about the uh, participation in elections uh, for people with intellectual disability. And it showed that only 2 out of 10 in, uh, in Sweden with an intellectual disability participated in the elections. Now, for some countries, that might not be uh, uh, anything to raise an eyebrow about, but in Sweden, the average uh, uh, participation in elections are well above 80%. So to us, that was an alarming number. And um, um, what differs what we do with the analysis that other nations have done is that uh, most nations, when they start to you know, give help to people with intellectual disability, they stop at helping them on how to vote while our analysis was that there's no use in teaching people how to vote unless they are invited to understand what they are voting about. So the very politics had to be made accessible at the same time. That's the key to our project. And what we did then, because it becomes a bit sensitive, right, when you are supposed to learn about politics because there could be an interpreter there that starts telling people how to vote and we, want, want, we, we, we wouldn't want that, right? So what we did is we, we are using a method called a study circle. Now, in the study circle, the participants are in charge. There is no curriculum, there is no teacher that is supposed to tell people and, and, and teach people things. Instead, we are studying how is Swedish democracy set up and uh, all the different political levels there is and what are they responsible for. And when the questions start to arise, well, okay, so city council is responsible for the schools. Well, what do the different parties think about the schools then? Then we don't try to tell them the answer to that. Instead, we are connecting them to the local politicians and, 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 and giving them the chance to, 
to put that questions directly to the politicians. And if the politicians aren't available, we're putting them in direct contact with new sources, right? So it's, uh, it's like a facilitator function that builds up political interest and helps them receive their answers. And then, in the end of this class that lasts for five to seven times, 20 to 30 hours, in uh, the last bit of that, this class, just a week or two before the election, we uh, arrange what we call an easy-to-understand electoral discussion. That's where every party that could be elected in Sweden, Sweden have a multiple-party system, gets invited to come to the electoral discussion. Now, the politicians that uh, participate in the discussion, they can't do that without undertaking an hour of training in easy-read before. So they make a handshake on lowering the speech barrier, the language barrier, for this electoral discussion. And then the, all the questions are asked by participants in the study circles. So there is only people with intellectual disability uh, putting the questions there. And the moderator will all the time make sure, did you understand the answer? Are you pleased with the answer you got? Right? Which means that uh, there is a whole new kind of, of uh, political discussion. Because if you discuss with the principles of easy read, you only talk about what you yourself want to do. You don't talk about what someone else is not wanting to do, right? Uh, and you uh, uh, use a direct language and you simplify and you cut out the stats and lots of those things, right? Which makes it a conversation that is more accurate, warmer, nicer to each other, and more constructive. So usually, ending up with, when that discussion is over, the politicians are just as happy as the, uh, uh, as the people that have listened to the political discussion. For, you know, because it's been a, a different occasion and a more constructive one. I was about to ask you how the politicians react to that, but the, that, that makes a lot of sense. So, so now this is every federal election in Sweden, every uh, every major election, or how often does this happen? The, the, we we uh, designed this method for 2014, and at that time we had uh, four elections in Sweden. Now. Uh, on the uh, general election day every fourth year, we always have three elections at the same time for all the different levels in Swedish democracy. And then the European Union kind of have a different schedule. So, uh, and today, those do, uh, this year, they are not uh, on the same year. And then the national, regional, and local election, the general election, will attend much more interest than European election. So there is a difference in how many study circles we do each year, right? But uh, last year, it was one of these national, regional, local elections. And then we had 109 study circles with more than 650 participants. And we had 49 electoral discussions with more than 2,000 uh, uh, attendees at the discussions. So uh, it, it is a game changer for those who need, because we should know also that people with intellectual disabilities not a, a group where everyone is the same. So some need the help, 
Some don't want the help because they don't want to vote and, you know, and that's an okay choice to make as well. And some don't need the help because they already know how to vote and already, you know, can follow the general discussion. So this is a, a, a class that has its aim to people that would like to vote but is unsecure and f say, hey, I need some help, can I get it? And among those who take the class, the study circle, more than 80% vote. So they're up on average with the Swedes if they take the class. Now, is this being applied anywhere else outside of Sweden that you know of? There are other different uh, uh, kind of, of initiatives going on, and some that are very good that we are trying to learn from that are succeeding in other ways. But um, uh, most initiatives around the world stop by teaching people how to vote and are not really uh, making politics accessible at the same time. Um, so uh, this is unique to us. But there are different ways of, you know, um, easy read interviews with politicians and all kinds of different initiatives like that going on around the world. Yeah. What is your objective here at Access Israel? Uh, I'm invited. Uh, uh, we were awarded uh, a best international practice at the Syrah Project in Vienna uh, this year. So the uh, uh, Israelis uh, 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 saw our project and immediately started working on having us uh, down for the Access Israel conference. So I'm, a, I'm about to give a presentation on, on uh, political participation in, in tomorrow's workshop. Well, congratulations, and I hope to see this spreading far and wide. This is an outstanding initiative. Thank you. That was Shell Stjernholm, the coordinator of My Choice, My Election in Sweden. When we come back, we'll speak with two women whose mandate and authority includes the enforcement of accessibility legislation in Israel and Chicago, respectively. What can we learn in Canada as we enter into the accessibility law age here? This is Access Israel on AMI-audio. My name is Andy Frank. Welcome back to AMI-audio's coverage of the 2019 Access Israel Conference in Tel Aviv. My name is Andy Frank. Among the 800 people attending the conference and related activities were some who were empowered with the authority to enforce accessibility legislation in their countries or cities. And I spoke with two women who had a few thoughts to share on the subject. Dr. Gabby Admon-Rick is from Israel's Commission for Equal Rights of Persons with Disabilities. I asked her about Israel's accessibility law. So the Commission, uh, the Equal Rights for People with Disabilities Law, was uh, passed in Israel in 1998. And the Commission for Equal Rights of Persons with Disabilities was founded in 2000. It, it is mandated according to the law to, um, to, be, to, um, to make this kind of um, organization. It is within the Ministry of Justice. The idea is that we are responsible for implementing the law and we have powers and enforcement powers to, uh, to do this. Dr. Admon Rick talks about the impact the law has had on employment for people with disabilities in Israel. We started uh, collecting data on employment uh, in 2002 and we see that since 2002 there is an increase of the in the involvement of people with disabilities in the, in the employment market, in the open employment market. So today we're reaching almost 60% of the people with disabilities that are uh, currently employed. 
Well, and this is still low compared to people without disabilities, which is 78%, 79%. So there's still a gap between people with disabilities and people without disabilities, but the data of people with disabilities is raising um, since, since through the years. And we think it's because of policies, different uh, awareness, uh, the, the law, the equal rights law, which talked about anti-discrimination and all kinds of government projects that are, and civil society activities. In fact, an additional law was recently passed which mandated employers of a certain size and function to hire people with disabilities. So two years ago, the parliament passed a law, the Knesset passed a law that um, mandates uh, each public, um, public, um, public organization to reach 5% uh, um, people with disabilities with, among their workers. It only applies to public uh, bodies that have more than 100 employees. So it's large public bodies. Um, and we know that in the world there were problems with the quota system and different, there's a difference of opinions, but in the end of the day uh, it passed in the Knesset. But we, we tried our commission, we actually we worked a lot with the Knesset in order to make this an the law um, effective. So we did some things into the law. We put, first of all, each employer says to us, we don't know how many people, how many people are going to, how many people do I employ? No, no, no employer knows the actual figures. So we have like an automatic system that um, crosses between the people with disabilities that are known to the government, to the government uh, offices, if they have a disability pension or something like that and the employees. So it's completely anonymous, but each employer knows where they're standing relative to this 5%. So each employer knows if they have to take more actions or less, or they're okay, they're fine. And we see that uh, currently already 60% of the employers uh, meet the requirement. So we're working now with, the, with those that don't meet the requirement. And the law also mandates what exactly they have to do in order to, um, to stand, to keep the law. So they have to, um, they have to comply. In order to comply with the law, they have to do a, make a plan, plan, an employment plan. So they, which will tell, which mentions exactly what actions they will take during this each year. They have to employ a person which will be responsible for this law. So there's a few actions that they have to take, and we can actually check whether or not they're doing these actions. We feel that it's moved. It's moving the, the field forward. It's raising awareness to the situation. It's opening up doors. We'll still to see what exactly will be the effect of the law. That was Dr. Gabby Admon-Rick from Israel's Commission for Equal Rights of Persons with Disabilities. During the course of the conference, I got to spend time with the commissioner for the mayor's office for people with disabilities for Chicago, LA, and New York. Karen Tamley is from the Windy City. I was invited to speak on a plenary panel um, with the disability commissioners for Los Angeles and New York on what we're doing to move the needle forward on accessibility and inclusion for people with disabilities. What did you uh, find that you shared in common with those two cities? Um, all three of us are very urban cities. Um, we're dealing with issues of, um, you know, transportation, employment, um, poverty um, in the disability community in our cities and the challenges that come with that, um, access to technology, the digital divide, um, you name it, we 
have just very similar um, issues that we're all trying to address. And now all of you, do you deal with the same uh, the same accessibility act with in it's, it's a federal legislation correct yes so we all um, work under um, the Americans with Disabilities Act which is a federal law that was signed um, in 1990 and protects the rights of people with disabilities um, in the areas of employment um, public accommodations so things like stores and restaurants and theaters um, government programs and services so transportation or government programs, um, as well as um, providing communication access for individuals who are deaf and hard of hearing. Do the three of you have share similar struggles when it comes to enforcement, or do you, are, there, are there big differences between one city and the other? Let's say just as this example between the, the three of you who happen to be sharing the, the session today. Yeah, I mean, I think Chicago and New York are probably a little more similar in the sense that we're older cities and we have older infrastructure, so both of our rail systems, for example, are not 100% accessible. Whereas in Los Angeles, they have newer transit systems, newer buildings, more low-rise buildings, um, and so they don't have as many challenges um, in the built environment as perhaps we might in older cities, like school accessibility is a big issue. Um, for example, in Chicago, where they were built over 100 years ago, right? We definitely, you know, have slight variances, but we all use the Americans with Disabilities Act really as our kind of base roadmap for making our cities more accessible and inclusive. So Canada is about to finally pass its own, what kind of sage advice would you have for us as we start tackling the, the various different issues that we're going to be tackling in a country as diverse as Canada's from both in the age of cities and regions and, you know, we're 40 million people spread across a country that's bigger in landmass than the U.S. Um, but what kind of off the top of your head sage words of wisdom would you have for us? Um, I would say, I mean, just having the backing of legislation um, is an incredibly powerful tool for creating change um, in your country, um, down to the local community. Um, I see it often as a marathon, not a sprint, and change doesn't always come overnight, um, but it's a long process, and it takes vigilance. You need the disability community um, to really be the eyes and ears of where the barriers are and what needs to be addressed, and I think that once you have the law behind you, it's much easier to create change. That was Karen Tamley of Chicago. She is the commissioner for the Mayor's Office for People with Disabilities in that city. When we come back after this break, we'll hear about some of the remarkable work being done at a hotel chain in Scandinavia and at a large tobacco retailer in Austria. This is Access Israel 2019. My name is Andy Frank. Welcome back to AMI-audio's coverage of the 2019 Access Israel Conference in Tel Aviv. My name is Andy Frank. In the world we inhabit, we hear a lot about the obstacles being faced by people with disabilities as they navigate day-to-day -day life, and rightfully so. Accessibility, employment, and entrepreneurship opportunities are among the many subjects we talk about at AMI every day. So I thought we'd look at a couple of success stories from overseas. One is a tobacco retail chain that is operated largely by people with disabilities in Austria, and another is a popular hotel chain in Northern Europe. Here is my conversation with Magnus Berglund, the Accessibility Director at Scandic Hotels. 
Scandic is the largest hotel operator in the Nordic region with 230 hotels and about 45,000 hotel rooms in seven countries. So you started at Scandic in 2003 and uh, you brought your own personal situation, as it were, to, uh, to the hotel to eventually make some revolutionary changes to the way the hotel operates as far as accessibility is concerned. Can you give us a, a brief summary of what happened? Yeah, the brief summary is, is really that I thought I know everything about hotel because I worked in the hotel business so many years before I was sick. And then I understand that I didn't know so much how it was to travel <laughs> and have some sort of disability. And I didn't sit in a wheelchair. I had a problem to walk more than three to five meters. And, um, but I contacted Scandic Hotel that I have a good, good contact with before and uh, told them that if they were going to start working with disparate questions, they're going to get more guests. And um, we started with that uh, the autumn 2003. The first we did was rent wheelchair. Let everyone in the head office, started with the CEO, sitting in a wheelchair for two hours. Huh. So we had free wheelchair for three months. And that's just one part of all disability, but extremely good way to getting up the discussion. So what we understand in Scandic Hotel that we need to start education. Because it doesn't matter at the same time if we design wonderful, beautiful, accessible rooms for everyone. If we don't training, like for example, if we don't training uh, the reception to telling the person that cleaning the room to, to go up before, if you're sitting in a wheelchair, go up before in the room and put down the shower. It doesn't matter how much money we put in and design, try to design a good thing. So what we understand that is not about the money on that term on the building, the first time is education. And that's what we started with. So it went from education, but then eventually it became something whereby every hotel, every Scandic hotel has to meet a certain criteria, a 135-point checklist of accessibility? So we're having a standard that is 159 points. And we, I think the first one was 93 points, so we had to do 2005. Uh, but we're we, we going forward to standard every second or third year, and then we see what, what, what we need to do. And this standard has nothing to do with the law, because in every country we don't own a building, we rent a building, but it's many things we can do anyway. And we, can have, and we have our standard in our contract when we build new hotels or when we renovation. Uh, but one out of five of these points is mandatory for all the hotels. And what, what we can do, uh, so if some of the points, uh, so if our points is higher than the law in that country, then it's our points. But if should be that some country have some of the points should be higher, then we always follow the law. Nothing to discuss about. But normally our standard is higher than the law in, in, in the country. So that, that's how we're working. So it could be everything in this list. It's everything from you have a stick holder in reception. So many times I go into a reception in a bank and I put my stick down and it falls down. So these things that don't cost money. It's costing $1. And we have hearing loops in reception. We have built an ugly blue alarm clock. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, 10% of the population, normally some, some people say it's 14% of the countries, but about 10% don't hear so well. So how should they wake up? So we have an alarm clock with a vibration. We put it on the pillow, so you know so it's vibration when you need to go up. But at the same time, this here in the fire alarm, so that's a security thing too. So then we can go forward all the hotel with this standard. So if we build a new hotel, then it's all 159 points. What I have found in my visits to Access Israel so far is that the, 
these decisions, more often than not, they come from a business case, and that's no different for you either, is it? This is a business case because I, I always go out to say, no, we don't have any disabled people in our hotel. We have guests in a hotel that maybe have a disability, and that's a different way to working. Uh, I, I mean, we, we're going out there directly and asking people with, that have some sort of disability, what do I need to do for you to be my guest? Uh, and we, we were seeing really directly that before we did anything with the standard, yes, to start the education of all our team members, that we're getting more guests with disability. And the best thing I ever heard was a guest that called me in 2005 and said, Magnus, I know you're doing lots of goods on the building, but that I like most. When I come into a Scandic hotel, I, I don't feel like that I'm a coat. The, uh, I'm not feeling that I'm handicapped. When I come into to a Scandic hotel, I feel like I'm a guest. And that's, then I'm happy. That, that, that's the best anyone can say. That's really what, what we're working on all the time. That's, when you ask me about our standard, we, I think we have two standards. We're having the education standard. That every, we, we have our own education. And then we're having the building standard. So that, that's the two most important things we're having. That was Magnus Berglund, the accessibility director at Scandic Hotels. Scandic is the largest hotel operator in the Nordic region with 230 hotels and about 45,000 hotel rooms in seven countries. Coincidentally, I stayed at a Scandic hotel in Berlin in 2016 and loved it for many other reasons, including their spectacular breakfasts and free minibar. But now, something completely different. The positive power of tobacco. Uh, my name is Hannes Hofer. I'm coming from Austria, from the city of Vienna. And I'm representing a company that's called MVG. And what we are doing is, is uh, maybe weird in this context, but uh, we have a retail chain in Austria that's selling cigarettes and is responsible for tobacco. <laughs> the important thing about this is that we have a very old history that we link this topic to people with disability. So what we do is we give all the shops to people who are disabled and they become entrepreneurs. It's their shops and I translate this in, and I call this a social, a public social franchise system. And what I think is really amazing about it is that people who are disabled become their own entrepreneurs. Okay, so there's a couple of questions that jump to mind. You know, tobacco is, is you know, such a... People react so negatively today to tobacco. It's evil and all these other things. But this is... So it's, it's jarring to hear something so positive associated with, with tobacco. But what was the history of this? How did this get started? Well, this all got started with, uh, with war, with veterans... And uh, it had two sides. On the one side, it became public because you can make so much money with uh, this sensible product, tobacco. And on the other side, you said, well, we're having problems. We've got the, these soldiers who fought for the country. We want to award them. This is when all the whole the veteran system started. And it started in Austria more than 300 years ago. So it has a very old tradition. So it's not something that I came up with. Yeah. So I'm just trying to translate this old tradition into a new age. And this is what I'm here for. And how are you going to do that? What are some of your, what are some of your ideas? I think I start with a strength and with the unique selling proposition that we're having. A unique selling proposition is that we make people who are disabled 
and make them entrepreneurs. I'm not talking about get them employed. I want to get them their self-enterprises. Uh, so this is what we're doing. This is our strengths. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm here also to learn, to learn how we can use this retail system for good things. You know, we have this tobacco. It's a difficult program. Still, it's a legal, it's a, it's a legal product with this reputation that we all know. But now I have to think, what is the right impact that we can do to make this a better world? And maybe the impact is that we can get others excited about this idea to go the next step after employment, which is entrepreneurship. What is unique is that you have something that most other uh, such concepts don't have, which is physical locations. You have physical uh, stakes all across the country, in your, in your country, and uh, that gives you all kinds of advantages or potential opportunities. Yes, of course, and any, what you should know is our system is the biggest retail chain in Austria. We have in Austria, a small country, 2,400 shops, and we have out of these 1,270 who are owned by disabled people. It's not 100% because people can inherit they can give it to some circumstances to their wives or men when they die or they can give it to the kids in the case they help them in their jobs in their shops so then the, this is why it's not 100% but I also like this because with this it's this, this, this picture of not exclusive to this group but it's also a mixed group people who are disabled and people who are not disabled so it's like in real life that was Hannes Hoffer of MVG, Austria's largest chain of tobacco retailers, which offer entrepreneurial opportunities to people with disabilities. MVG has over 2,000 locations in a country the physical size of New Brunswick, but with the population of Quebec. When we come back, we'll hear from some of the tech people I spoke with in Tel Aviv at Access Israel's seventh annual conference, including Google Accessibility, who has some cool things on the horizon, this is Access Israel 2019. My name is Andy Frank. Welcome back to AMI Audio's coverage of the 2019 Access Israel Conference in Tel Aviv. My name is Andy Frank. Last year, this report focused a great deal on the many tech startups that showcased their ideas at the conference. Israel is, after all, a startup nation. This year, I left more impressed with the networking that happens at the event, five days of it or more for some, and it's a big reason the conference happens, so that we may learn from others about solutions to accessibility issues and to share experiences. But there was some cool tech, and one of the stars of the conference was from Google. Hi, my name is Christopher Patno. I am the lead program manager for Google's central accessibility team. I'm out in our headquarters in Mountain View. So before we get into that, just your impressions of Access Israel and what you've observed over the past few days here. It's a jam-packed conversation, excitement. It's kind of like drinking the fire hose of people who believe the same thing that you do. You feel like you can conquer the world, and they've taken really good care of us. All right, so let's talk about some of the things that are currently happening with Google and some of the things that are coming up. Why don't you just hit me? Sure. Um, in terms of things that people can get today, um, if you're in the U.S., 
as at this point, we have a really exciting application called Lookout. This is an application that uses your phone and the camera and computer vision and machine learning models to describe the world around you. And this is a tool to help people who are blind or low vision. And it will take a con your context and describe to you what's appropriate. So if you, are, you have it turned on, it can say there's a person at 12 o'clock or a pair of scissors at 10 o'clock. It'll let, give you strong signals in terms of what's there. And we use the context. You can say, I'm at work or things like that. It'll describe to you things that are relevant to where you are. And in terms of things for a different community, the deaf or hard of hearing, we have an application shipping called Live Transcribe. And this does what it name says it does. It, it transcribes the things around you, but it does it in real time. And this is available today. It ships in 70 different languages, um, including Hebrew, which made people here really, really happy. And... Um, it also allows you to, 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 to type back and forth. So it's not meant to replace a translator, but to, to supplement situations where you don't have a translator with you. It gives you an opportunity to have a conversation with someone if you can't hear or hear well. Now this is, it uses the microphone and the cloud. So it, it listens to what you're saying and sends the audio up to the cloud. It, it, it does a recognition of it and sends back the text. And it does it very, very quickly. And what's coming up a little uh, down the road? Yeah, um, a few weeks ago we had our Google I.O. Where, where Sundar Pichai, our CEO, announced some really exciting projects. And two in particular I'm really excited for. Um, one is called Live Relay. And this is a prototype who's actually designed by an engineer here in our Tel Aviv office. That was Christopher Patineau of Google. Wait, let's hear from that engineer herself. I'm Sapir Kaduri. I'm based here in Israel, in uh, Google in Israel, in Tel Aviv. And I'm a software engineer working uh, in RMI organization, Research Machine Intelligence Organization. So uh, Live Relay is an AI research project to allow uh, deaf and hard of hearing or anyone who cannot uh, listen or speak at the moment to make and receive phone calls without, without having to listen or talk. Uh, this is done by uh, using uh, a phone that intermediates uh, between both sides on the call. One side is using text and uh, reading and composing replies in real time, and the other side is using voice, and the phone intermediates between the two. So uh, this is done by um, text-to-speech text and speech-to-text technologies, sorry, that converts <laughs> the text to um, audio and the audio to text. And uh, we also uh, integrate uh, smart predictions to expedite uh, user typing. And this is uh, not yet launched, and uh, we're working on it just uh, these days. Safir went on to explain the origins of Live Relay. It arised uh, after um, we've, I've, I've, I've read on the media about needs of people in Israel that uh, were frustrated about not being able to speak with uh, IVR systems, with uh, agents. In, with text and, um, and emails. So uh, I aimed it, when, when I just started it, I aimed it to uh, help uh, deaf and hard of hearing. But I think it can benefit, anyone can benefit from that if you're in a meeting, in a noisy place, and you're unable uh, to speak at the moment. And also when you move in between uh, your elevator to, uh, to an open space or back to a quiet space, allowing that cross-modality changes, you can text and then you can speak so it's, it can, anyone can benefit of it, but mainly deaf and hard of hearing and people with speech impairments. We now return to our interview with Christopher Patineau of Google and his look ahead to accessibility products that are on the horizon. Also an, another research project is called Project Euphonia. It allows a person to create a dedicated voice, voice model. So the way voice recognition happens is we have a, 
millions of hours of understanding of, of how people speak in standard languages, in standard accents, but someone who has a deaf accent, for example, or someone with, with, with ALS, and you have different kinds of utterances, it allows us to understand those and make connections. So for someone who has a... Uh, the, the example here is with a man named Dimitri, one of the inventors of this, of this um, technology. He was, and went thousands and thousands of words into the model, and we trained the model to be so efficient that actually this model understands him better than I do. And I've been working with them for a while. So the, the, the quality is really, really high. So this also has been helpful for people with ALS. The, there's a really lovely video on YouTube. I, I strongly recommend you take a look at it. It explains this much better than I do. But it allows someone with ALS to translate different utterances and, and connect that to a, a, a reaction or an action. So in, in the video, there's a person who was at, 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 a, at a ball game. And something happened and they were so excited they made the utterance and a, a horn went off and they made it happen with their with their voice so it allows allows different people to use their voice in different ways something a little different something i heard yesterday was that among the high-tech giants out there there's a great spirit of cooperation around developing and learning from each other in terms of accessibility can you elaborate a bit on that yeah i've, I've called this the Accessibility is the, the virtual Switzerland of, of, of technology where we really do help each other in terms of advancing common goals for the community. We, we don't share roadmaps. We don't share anything that, that is technological. But in terms of how do we advance the state of, um, the, state of the art for inside corporations, often tools that we would all use aren't accessible. So we would want to talk together and, and apply pressure to a specific company. Hey, please make this accessible. This is really important to us. Or what are the best practices in terms of setting up a call center? And this is, this is I think we were talking about this yesterday. Um, when Google was planning on creating our, our first call center for people with disabilities, we didn't know how to get started. Google doesn't really do this very often, especially for, for free products. So we had conversations with Facebook and with Apple and with Microsoft, and they shared a lot of their best practices and, and things to look out for and things to take advantage of. And it really helped us set up our plan. So when, then a few months ago, we rolled out our um, customer service operation, which is phone and, phone and chat and email support. And we're looking, and recently in the, at CSUN this past year, we actually added Be My Eyes support. And this is, these ideas of Be My Eyes is something that came out of a conversation we had with Microsoft. So it's, it's been really nice to see each other help each other for the sake of the common people, because we don't compete on, on accessibility. We don't compete for, with this community. We want to support the community. We'll fight tooth and nail on other things, but this is a place where we want to do the right thing. Where can people get more information about Google and accessibility? Google.com slash accessibility. That's an easy one. So you don't even have to Google it. That's awesome. <laughs> that was Christopher Patino of Google, who was one of the stars of the conference. They tend to be obvious after a day or two, people who are seemingly in demand throughout the day by various other delegates. Another such star will close our broadcast. She is from Kenya via the United States, and she is a force to be reckoned with. I finally caught up with her on one of our many bus journeys near the end of the conference. My name is Irene Mbari Kirika. Uh, I'm from Kenya, but I've spent my entire adult life in the United States, so I live in Washington, D.C. And what brings you to Access Israel? So I came to Access Israel because uh, I've been working in the intersection of disability and technology for the last 10 years. 
and um, I definitely want to do something similar in Kenya, like bring the conversation about accessibility in Africa, because most conversations about accessibility take place in the Western world. Um, but 80 million, 80% uh, of people with disabilities actually live in Africa. So we need to bring uh, the conversation home to people in Africa so that we can all begin to understand what's the meaning of accessibility and what action items are needed to make life better for people with disabilities. So describe to me some of the work that you have done in Kenya. Okay. So in Kenya, I've been fortunate enough to uh, empower uh, uh, the blind and low vision students and their teachers. About 10 years ago, I started a program, a computer program for the blind. And what we do is we partner with special schools for the blind in Kenya and, um, and implement technology program. So initially how I started is by, I got inspired when I met the blind students and I realized that I do not know much about them. And when I try to find out what they do to earn a living and how they live, I realize most some of them get into begging, others get into prostitution, others stay at home. But for me, the students I had met were very competitive and they were independent and they were happy kids. So for me, there's no difference between a, a child who's blind and one who's sighted. It's just the opportunities that they receive in their lifetime. So from there, I tried to figure out how can I connect them to the rest of the world because there was an over-reliance on Braille in Kenya, meaning that they only use Braille in school and sometimes a class of 15 students may have one textbook or two textbooks. So that's not sufficient. At the same time, when they graduate from high school, they only graduate with Braille skills, meaning that even if they came to your office, you cannot hire them because they can't write anything you can read and you can't read Braille. So I needed something to connect them. So fortunately, I ended up meeting a lady uh, who was sending me a lot of emails and I had uh, just given me information about blindness when I went back to the States. And I remember going to see her about four, four weeks later and to my surprise, I have no idea what she said the first five minutes because I, I had to ask her to stop talking because I, I, I didn't know that she was blind. So that was my aha moment because I started asking her, those long emails that you sent to me, who writes the emails for you? And she's like me. Everything I asked, it was her. And I was like, oh my God, this is it. I'd found my solution. And from there, I got my friends to donate $3,400. Very naive, I promise you. We started with, uh, we partnered with the school that I met. We took 15 refurbished, bought refurbished, 15 refurbished computers locally, and we enrolled 100 students and teachers. First forward 10 years later, we've enrolled more than 5,000 students. So as I speak, we actually have 1,514 students on the program. We are currently in six schools for the blind, and we've provided more than 35,000 hours of computer skills training for blind uh, students. So that's what we've done so far. It's been an amazing journey. So our new venture is really to see how we can put them in employment. So you mentioned something a few days ago about uh, wanting to have a conference um, in Africa is kind of similar to what we're experiencing currently in Tel Aviv. Yeah, I, I think part of it is because we want to create awareness about accessibility because if you look at the work I've done in the last 10 years, accessibility is in the heart of what Enable does, which is the organization that I established 10 years ago. And what we found is that there's a lot of content that's not accessible. There's a lot of devices being used that are not accessible. People don't even understand what's accessibility. We don't have accessibility laws or policies in place. 
So we need to bring people together to be able to discuss the, what is accessibility. And we can understand accessibility from different industries so that countries like Kenya or South Africa or any other African nation can begin to plan and know the best way to implement accessibility across the board. This is important because it will also enable people to people with disabilities to join employment. Because part of the biggest problem is most employment places are not accessible. And when you bring the issue up, people don't know what to do. So a conference like uh, Access Israel and other accessibility conferences in the U.S. are taking place at a very good time because there's a lot of technology being developed. And in Africa, there are a lot of innovations, but most of these innovations are not accessible. So if we can bring the conversation to policymakers, to the current developers, to the computer science professors, then you will find that with proper laws in place, even the developers and the designers will start developing products that are accessible for all Kenyans or all Africans. So you're hoping for next year for the conference? Yes, we are hoping to host the conference between March 29th to March 31st of 2020 and we welcome anyone who's interested in coming to learn about accessibility in Africa or anyone who's interested in sharing about their experience and uh, I think it will be life-changing because it's about creating awareness and showing people the possibilities that are ahead of us. Have you got a website yet or is there something that yes? So we have uh, we do not have the conference website up yet but we do have our website which is www enable which is spelled i n a b l e dot org www.inable.org that was irene and barry karika the founder and executive director of enable i look forward to the news coming out of her conference in kenya in march of 2020 that's all the time we have to look back at Access Israel's 7th Annual Conference in Tel Aviv. I want to thank Access Israel, in particular Michal Rimon, the CEO, whose hospitality was second to none. Thanks as well to Israel's Ministry of Tourism. If you wish to listen to this broadcast again, it is available as a podcast under AMI-audio live. My name is Andy Frank. Thanks to Bill Shackleton and Paula Deneen for their technical assistance. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.
Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts. Hello, I'm Sean Priest. Join me monthly for Sean of the Shed, where I introduce you to all the technology that can be so useful to us as blind or partially sighted people. Find Sean of the Shed wherever you find all your podcasts. Hi, I'm Stephen Scott. Join me every day for Double Tap. It's a show where we occasionally talk about technology for blind and partially sighted people. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.